once people are given permission to innovate and they are given training to innovate, they're going to have fun in their job. They're going to like what they do. Of course, the ambidexterity sounds easy uh, in terms of, on one hand, having ex execution and on the other hand, having innovation. But in the, it's, it's quite hard to do. Yeah. We're discussing innovation with customers. We're speaking with Professor Ben Bensau of INSEAD and Monica Lessel of the huge German conglomerate Bayer AG. Ben, you're the author of this excellent book. It's called Built to Innovate. Tell us about the book. Tell us about your work. Over the last, I would say, almost 20 years, uh, I spent uh, a lot of time with um, established companies operating in very traditional businesses, and I've seen uh, leaders transform these uh, uh, very old traditional companies into innovation powerhouses. Uh, uh, and uh, what I wanted to do with the book is to document these transformation uh, stories and try to codify what I have learned uh, in the form of new frameworks, new concepts, new tools, and a methodology uh, that I want to share with a wider audience. Monica, welcome to CXO Talk. I've, I'm very grateful for your taking the time to be here. And please tell us about your role and about Bayer AG. My role uh, at Bayer is uh, I'm responsible for uh, corporate R&D and social innovation which means that I'm responsible for strategic research and development, uh, but also for innovation overall at Bayer. And uh, many people may know Bayer uh, because it's a more than 150-year-old company and it's known from uh, the drug aspirin. But maybe it's interesting uh, to note that we are a, a company that is active in different areas in the life sciences, which are the pharmaceutical area, but also in agriculture and also in consumer health. So we have three main businesses and I'm kind of uh, strategically responsible for the uh, innovation part for all three of them and uh, looking forward to the discussion today. Thanks. I don't think people realize that Bayer AG has about $50 billion in annual revenue. It's, it's an enormous company. Yeah, absolutely. And we also have more than 100,000 people across the globe. And uh, so it's truly global. And as I said, uh, really a life science company, which is uh, quite fascinating. Ben, you talk about the innovation and the execution engines as driving a business. So let's start there, because I think that's the foundation for then moving into the, the relationship between the customer and innovation. As, as everybody realizes, we live in a, in a competitive environment, which is uh, very uncertain, volatile, and, and fast changing. And this means that organizations and their leaders, they must uh, excel at two uh, different activities and sometimes very uh, contradictory. Uh, on the one hand, they need to execute today's strategy deliver uh, with high efficiency the products and services that the customers uh, need. And this is a challenge of execution. But at the same time, these leaders, they need to imagine the, uh, the strategy of the future and help make it happen. 
they need to uh, ex excel at rethinking and reimagining what they do today and uh, imagining uh, how to improve their existing products and services and think about the new products that nobody has thought about. And this is the challenge of innovating. So every organization has to be able to uh, innovate and execute at the same time. Monica, thoughts on that topic of innovation and execution. You're responsible for significant innovation at, at, at a very large organization. So how does what Ben described resonate with you? I think it's the, the challenge of ambidext territory, yeah, which is, uh, as Ben described, on one hand, to, to make sure that you drive the new innovation that you invest uh, in new areas, but at the same time, make sure that you execute because otherwise you have nothing to invest. Yeah? So you need the revenues, you need uh, the money and the returns in order to be able to, to go into the new areas. Yeah? And this is um, a day-to-day -day challenge, uh, but which is uh, a role that each leader has to play because otherwise there is no future for an, for an organization. What about this notion of innovation starting with the customer? Ben, you talk a lot about that and, and your, that concept is woven throughout your book. In a way, it seems like kind of an obvious concept, but I guess it's not that obvious or you wouldn't have had to write a book about it. What I've noticed, actually, if you if you allow me, I would like to kind of uh, also explain the distinction I made between innovation and innovating, which is really central to the notion of the the importance of the customer. Uh, I've learned through my early mistakes uh, in in my early career when I was uh, designing uh, programs for innovation. Uh, I used to use titles like value innovation or disruptive innovation or uh, sometimes blue ocean strategy. And what I discovered is that the word innovation as a noun was 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 deeply intimidating for uh, non-specialists like frontline employees or or, or managers. Uh, and I was really puzzled by why this created so much anxiety and fear in people. And I realized that what was happening is that they had this feeling that uh, after the training, going back to work, they were ex they were being expected by their boss to come out with a, a new product or a new a new service, a new business model, some sort of a, a, a concrete outcome, a result. And then one day, I started to use a different word. I started to use the word uh, to innovate as a verb or innovating, and I realized that the the, the tension the fear, the anxiety would dissipate. And I understood that when we talk about how to innovate or learning to become more innovative, we are talking about a process, a behavior, uh, an attitude. And this is something that can be, that can be learned. This is something that can be supported with tools. And now, if I come to this notion that if you think of innovation as the tip of the iceberg, if you will, the thing that we see above the water level, innovating and innovating capabilities is what is under the water level, is all of these organizational capabilities, uh, as, 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 as Monica was talking, the capabilities of the 100,000 of employees at Bayer who uh, uh, can, can bring new ideas, which might actually come to become innovation. So 
Built to innovate, and an innovating engine is about how to enlist and leverage all of these innovating capabilities within the organization. Now, the definition I use for innovating is at the core of the notion of the customer. For me, innovating is about systematically looking for new ideas that create value for a customer and for the organization. And when I mean by a customer, it can be an internal or an external customer. Or in B2B, it could be your direct customer or your customer's customer or your supplier, or maybe a regulator, uh, an influencer. So customer is at the core of innovation. I think it's been described that it was also when I started, uh, it's quite some years ago, uh, really the, the, the point uh, that people felt not being included in innovation because they always felt it's something so big and you have to be a genius to, to drive innovation. Yeah? And this is where we said, no, I mean, innovation is for, for everyone and everybody can contribute. Of course, the levels are different, and but also incremental innovation is important. You don't always have to have the really disruptive innovation. Yeah. So, and of course, as an if you look from a strategic perspective, you need all types of innovation, but not every employee will contribute to it uh, in the same way. And by kind of explaining this, we also enabled everyone to contribute. But then, of course, the key question was what people were asking us is, well, I, I really would like to contribute, but I don't know how. Yeah, And so this is where uh, we also started to uh, provide, uh, on one hand, trainings, um, very simple ones. Yeah, So we started with something like a systematic inventive thinking, which is a very easy methodology you can learn, you can easily apply. And then also, but then also supported it with a whole a network of people, and, and I can say later a bit more about it, so that you have both. I think what we learned is it's not enough just to have this training, but then you have to have support how you apply it in, in real life. Yeah. But I think that was a very important point. That innovation is for everyone and, uh, and, and not only for a selected group of people. I think this is a very important point that uh, that that you're making, Monica, and I and I, and I see and I see the pattern uh, in in many many organizations. There's this. Uh, many people believe that you need to have a, a genius leader or, or 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 to be a startup to be able to innovate, and 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 that's not true. In, in the research and the work that I've, I've I've been able to do, I've seen established even centuries old companies uh, able to innovate. And it's exactly what you were saying. It's not only being focused on trying to come up with a huge kind of industry changing effect, but they look for uh, small, important changes, sometimes in very unexpected places. And this is what you refer to, uh, continuous and systematic innovation. innovation of every kind and driven by everybody on the organization. And this is why I, I found that many organizations that became very innovative, just like you know Bayer is a good example, uh, uh, they are able to create this protected and fully legitimized space where everyone can innovate, not only the specialist. You can innovate in everything you do, your products, your services, but also in your uh, internal processes, in your functions, and innovating 
as I was talking about the verb, innovating becomes a habit. It sounds to me like you're both describing innovation as a cultural, Ben, you use the term habit. Yes. I, I was going to say uh, to develop innovation as being part of the cultural DNA of the organization. And I see you're both nodding, so you agree. But that then raises the question, Monica, of how to do this. It it sounds so simple and, you know, let's, fine, we now have a culture of innovation, but it's probably not that easy. As we know, the most difficult changes are cultural changes, yeah, and I think there is this nice wording of uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast, um, because if you want to achieve behavioral change, this is the most difficult thing you can ever do, yeah. Um, and therefore, it needs uh, changes in many, many areas, yeah. Um, I mean, as I said, I mean, we, we try to, on one hand, have a, a support system, but then also what we did is included in all kinds of training, I mean, more leadership training that we have in the company, we included it in our values. So we have the so-called life values, and then there also is innovation is uh, one, one key element of this. Um, and, and this, it takes time. Yeah? It's nothing that happens from day to tomorrow. And of course, it also needs the right leadership. Yeah? Um, in order to make it happen. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this is, I think, a concerted action that takes time and, uh, and continuous movement. We have a, an interesting question from Twitter from Arsalan Khan, who says, sometimes the lack of incentives is the reason why not everybody is engaged to be innovative. So can you talk about the role of incentives in driving, creating this culture of innovation? You need incentives, but before incentives, I would say that you need permission. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I think especially if we're talking about uh, uh, innovation as being everybody's job, uh, uh, people need to be uh, sincerely be given uh, permission to innovate. And, and, and of course, they need, uh, they need to be motivated. As a matter of fact, for people to innovate, as uh, I remember the words of uh, Jan Karendi, who used to be uh, uh, the board member at uh, Allianz, the uh, German financial conglomerate, uh, he was the one responsible on the board for uh, innovation. And he used to say, for people to innovate, they need to feel able, which means they have permission. They need to feel capable, which means that they need to have the, the tools, the training that Monica was talking about, to have the time and the resources to be able to, to actually innovate, and they need to be motivated. And for them to be motivated, they need to feel that there's a, there's a, there's a sense of a challenge, they have autonomy, and they are recognized, recognized and, 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 and rewarded for it. So now, there's a very delicate question about who should be incentivized for innovation. And of course, if you start to put metrics on the front line, then you're going to kill innovation. As I said, you know, innovation is very intimidating. And if people don't know how to do it, they haven't been trained, they don't have the proper tools and proper coaching support for that, you're going to kill innovation. So the incentive should be with the, the, the what I would refer to as the middle managers. Uh, the, the incentive should be for them to create an atmosphere where their team feels uh, safe 
they have safety and trust in innovating. I can give the example, for instance, of Allianz UK. They, they, they have, I mean, some people use very hard incentives, like, you know, a percentage of your bonus is attached to how much of new products are delivered to your growth. But there are soft, soft, soft incentives, like what I saw at Allianz UK, where they regularly publish uh, an innovation league table. Uh, for the UK businesses. So you can see that middle managers, uh, they don't want to be at the bottom of the league. Uh, uh, so they're going to be encouraging their team to be innovative. This is what I call uh, give permission and make other people jealous. Uh, it's kind of a motto to, 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 to show that if you give permission to your people, they're going to become innovative and they're going to make you look good. Yeah, maybe I can add to this uh, exactly what Ben was saying. Uh, psychological safety, I mean, it's something, first, a concept that you need to teach leaders so that they can understand. And it also gives the frame, yeah, because you also don't want to innovate. I mean, let's give an example. I mean, you have a manufacturing facility which delivers drugs. And at that moment, you don't want to change the system, running system. Yeah, But of course, you want to see what's the next. Maybe it's the printing of, uh, of, of new pills, uh, which is the new way of working. So... You have to make sure in which area you want to drive innovation yeah, and set that frame. So I think that's clear to, to be clear there. And then, uh, I mean, also, as, as also Ben was saying, if you try to come up with a new concept, a new idea, you expose yourself. And it's a natural behavior that the fear of losing something, which is your reputation, is much bigger than the fear of gaining or the, or the kind of um, potential incentive of gaining something. So for people to expose you themselves, it takes a lot. Yeah. So therefore, this safety environment is very important. And what I've, I've uh, learned is that kind of uh, the best way of recog is recognition. Yeah. That you give them a platform to present to senior management, which can be an innovation day, which can be an innovation competition. So, and then of course, uh, if you are recognized and the leaders are showing the same behavior then uh, others will follow, yeah. Uh, if, if I may give you an example, actually, I, I really like what you just said, Monica, about the notion that uh, of, of safety. Um, and, and, and I'm always surprised how senior leaders are shocked to hear that, in fact, their frontline people are very innovative. They have lots of ideas. But the thing is that they are afraid. They're, 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 they're afraid to actually, uh, they don't know what their boss is going to think. And actually what I learned, and I uh, I learned a, a very interesting uh, thing from a, a Japanese manager that I, I trained almost 10, 10, 10, 12 years ago. And I actually happened to have met him uh, uh, just before Christmas in Tokyo. And so this is, he works for Recruit. Uh, I mean, people in the U.S. might know Recruit. Uh, they are the owners of uh, Indeed and um, Glassdoor.com. Um, glass but this is what he, he, he taught me. He taught me the power of thank you, <laughs> of, all, of all things. And he explained to me why this was important, because after I trained him, I observed him for many years, and he, he, he had this habit of every time somebody came up with an idea, he would say, thank you. And I was really kind of intrigued by it. And he explained to me a very profound thing. He said, when people are in the execution mode, they are executing their task. And they know that, you know, very often it's structured, it's observable. So their boss 
can know if they're doing their job well or not. And they even have KPIs to measure them. But it, when it comes to innovation or innovating, as I call it, you don't have this visibility. No, I can't come and say, oh, Michael, I think you have an idea. You're hiding it from me. There's no way for me to know if you have an idea. So if, if you don't have the safety, if you don't, if you don't feel comfortable uh, and you're afraid to propose your idea to the boss or in a meeting, you won't. So what he understood, his name is Iwashita. Iwashita-san, what he understood is that when people expressed an idea, they were effectively taking a risk. They were taking a risk. And he took their idea as a gift to him. And he told me, when I receive a gift, I just say thank you. When it comes to innovating with customers, how should we go about that? You know, the customer's culture is different from ours and we need their assistance and places a burden upon us to listen, to understand. How do, how do we go about it? And especially how do we systematize this and build it into that, into our culture in the right way? Yeah, maybe I can give you two examples. I mean, one is, uh, of course, uh, patients. I mean, we are a pharmaceutical industry and now uh, patients are coming much closer into our processes. If we design a clinical trial uh, and how the processes are, so we have also much more involvement uh, of patients so that they really can say uh, what they need. Uh, and then, of course, if we develop a new product, we also early on um, prefer, uh, yeah, ask questions. Yeah? So, I mean, one example I can give you is, I mean, we are developing drugs against uh, endometriosis, so that's a women's disease and can be very painful. But uh, the main cause of this is that you have some tissue of the uterine even in, in other areas of, of your body, and these are called lesions. From a scientific perspective, you always look on I mean, diminishing these lesions, but the main problem for the women is the pain. Yeah? So, and this is also, I think, a good example where, I mean, sometimes you, you cure, but you don't address the day-to-day -day problem, and you can only get this through the dialogue, yeah? and that's why kind of this involvement is is uh, so powerful yeah. and uh, another example is also if you look on the innovation process um, there it's absolutely critical um, not only to follow your own idea but uh, I mean there's also this nice saying uh, don't fall in love with your uh, idea fall in love with the problem yeah and sometimes even as a, especially in companies that are very technically driven or scientifically driven, you love your idea, yeah. And and of course you have to love it, but at one point you have to test it, yeah, with the with the customer. And and this is very very important to get the feedback and and listen um, carefully what is really their need, and then to pivot maybe uh, your idea. Yeah. So that's how I see it, and and it has to be integrated into the process. Yeah. Actually, if I were to kind of uh, add to this, I would say that uh, in, in in a way to get uh, to learn from the customer, you need to, to to actually close two two important gaps, and 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 one that people tend to uh, underestimate is to close the gap internally within the organization between the would-be innovators and the people who know about the customer. Who are close to the customer. So even kind of getting your your your, your scientists and your R and D people to build a partnership 
a, a true partnership with your marketing and sales is very important. I mean, I remember uh, uh, you, you had you had on your show uh, 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 Jonathan Becker uh, uh, from the, the the San Jose San Jose. You say San Jose Sharks, right? The uh, hockey team, and and he, he did the same thing. He built a, a partnership between the IT people and the marketing people. So I think already it goes a long way. To get the people who are close to the customer to work with the would-be innovators, and I could I could I could actually give you a very nice example of of, of how, for instance, BASF uh, uh, d- d- developed uh, a new a new uh, sole, uh, a new form that goes in the sole for Adidas. But 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 let me mention about the other gap that you have to close is the gap between your own organization and 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 the customer the customer themselves, and I mean. It can be very simple things. I mean, uh, in a B two C example, I can give you uh, uh, the 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 experience we had with Starwood, the um, the uh, hospitality uh, 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 global firm. Uh, they had a conference in uh, in in Paris, and they wanted us to kind of. Uh, they have seven hundred attendees, and they wanted us to to come and 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 help talk to people about innovation. So uh, what what we do what we did is that we we provided people with a few simple tools, as Monica was saying, and then we we split. We split uh, the 700 people in uh, in teams of, uh, of 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 about 10 people, and then we we send them into the street of Paris with a, a notebook and cameras, and ask them to just roam around the streets and try to 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 take uh, pictures and notes and and find some insights about the experience of their customers. Well, when the when they all came back, they had generated. 1,700 new ideas in three hours. And what was really fascinating that a, 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 a lot of people were saying, well, I, I'm not a creative type, but, 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 but I can do it. And, 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 and just by observing their customers, they were able to uh, generate uh, innovative ideas. The other way for in a, fence, uh, in a B2B example, you can create a space where your people work together uh, with the customers, I mean, um, I, I, I can mention the example just to to have a non uh, a non kind of traditional business here, the the experience of the Pentagon, uh, where the uh, Air Force has has a lab where they can simulate all sorts of dangerous and has hazardous uh, war games, and they have this uh, uh, Operation Tech Warrior where they have these immersion exercises where they bring engineers from the suppliers and they train them for uh, two weeks and then they put them in a, in a battalion, uh, a squadron, where they can actually see their products, how they work or don't work in a real situation with real weapons. So this is, this is and I've seen other companies do the same thing, bring their customers into their research centers to actually see how their products work in the real world. Monica, does this notion of uh, co-creation and really collaborating with the customer, again, resonate with you? Is, is that something that's part of your innovation set of innovation activities? Well, I think it, it has to be part of, of those uh, who are driving uh, the respective innovation projects. Everyone has to be 
they are close to the customer. Yeah? And uh, maybe I can give you also uh, one other example. Um, I mean, we also used to have an animal uh, uh, health business as well. And there was one example where we have a very nice uh, collar for dogs or cats uh, against ticks. Yeah? But people always have to take care that this collar only is valid for, I think, two to three months. Yeah. And then they have to be uh, ready to change it and so on and so forth. And by interviewing then the customers, uh, they found out, well, I mean, I don't want to care about this. Yeah. So, uh, and so in the end, we were selling more an insurance yeah, a service rather than the product. Yeah. And I think there's a good example on, on finding out, okay, what do customers really care about? Yeah. Or I can give you another example. So we also have uh, an environmental health uh, business. And so for, let's say, for a nutrition industry uh, and with this environmental health business, we also make sure that the um, uh, the manufacturing and so on is also pest-free and everything. So, and again, they they were, it was a burden for them to take care of, um, of all of this and buying just the products. But then also we turned it into a service. And of course, it's much easier for them. So I think it's really about understanding where are the pain points um, and then how can you address them and but it has to be uh, I mean every um, every marketeer as Ben said has such an insight and it's about connecting these ideas then uh, to the R&D organization or to uh, the innovation uh, colleagues so that in the end it's it's coming to fruition and brings in the new the new concepts and, and the future growth. Yeah. This is the the, 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 the important challenge uh, when you're dealing with a customer, whether you bring them closer or not. I mean, you have to bring them closer for sure. But but what is really the challenge is, is, is I, I call it, one is to learn how to listen to the voice of the customer. As, 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 as Monica was saying, trying to understand their, their, their pain points, their dislikes, their likes, you know, and their wishes. Uh, and for this, you need to learn to, 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 to switch from the what I call the, the tell mode or the sell mode and, and move into a listen mode, a listen with empathy. The second challenge is to learn how to listen to the what I call the silence of the customer, the things that the customer doesn't tell you. They don't tell you because they don't know themselves or they know, but they don't think it's, uh, it's your problem to solve. Uh, uh, an interesting uh, example is, is 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 how Philips, for instance, um, uh, the Dutch kind of appliance and uh, uh, company, developed the first um, uh, kettle with a, a lime scale filter. So the the, the project team actually uh, sent some people to 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 live. Uh, this was in the UK, huh? so this was in the UK business. Uh, they sent a team of people to live with UK families. And after a few days, they they discovered about the problem of the lime scale. Uh, I, I suppose everybody is familiar with this uh, kind of uh, thin film of, of, of calcium floating on top of the water. What was interesting is that uh, uh, customers, uh, customers never told them about the lime scale problem. Uh, it's not because they were not aware of it, because they were spending a lot of time trying to scoop the lime scale with a spoon, but they didn't think it was the kettle manufacturer's problem. They would complain to the water authorities. 
So here, Philips just uh, it took their engineers uh, a few weeks to develop a, a, a little filter, which you find now on all the kettles, by the way, uh, to, 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 to stop the, the lime scale. And the third, the third challenge, by the way, if I may just finish with this, is that you learn or you need to learn about uh, to learn about the non-customers. I think we focus on customers, the voice and the silence of the customer, but you can also find a lot of weak signals and learn about great innovation ideas by looking at non-customers. And Arsalan Khan from Twitter comes back and says, who defines the customer. So how do you identify the right customers to be listening to or the right non-customers? Because this is so central. I also really support this, that idea of non-customers. And this also, I mean, of course, it's it's the customer, but it's also in a broader sense society. I mean, and there, let me give you the example of all sustainability. I mean, this now becomes such a huge topic or is a such a huge and very important topic. It's a make or break it. If we are not successful within the next 10 years, so we will have hot house earth. So this is something where now also in our consumer, I mean, like every packaging has to be in a sustainable manner and so on. So this is where there is a very, very strong voice. And so that's something where we also have to, we have to implement and where we are actively working on and also have our, our commitments uh, in terms of, uh, for example, getting carbon zero but it's also in, impacts, of course, also our products, uh, especially, of course, the consumer brands, but also uh, our crop science business. Yeah, And uh, yeah, I think it's it's about listening to the individual customer, but then also to societal changes and, and uh, changing behaviors. If you want to do this in a very systematic way, I have a very simple kind of uh, uh, technique uh, or, or tool is to you you, you take your, your, your product or service and you literally build the whole ecosystem that surround it. Think about all the people who are in touch with your product. Think about all the processes that are in touch with your product or service. Think about all the points of decisions or information that are connected to your product. And you kind of build this whole kind of web of people and, and products and, uh, and processes that are connected to, your, to, to, to you. And you, you know who your customers are. So you can identify the non-customers as all the rest. It could be, as I said, it could be your suppliers, could be your customers, your uh, the influencers, the regulators could be could be could be the the source of innovation. So uh, I think it's uh, I don't want to say it's an endless task, but uh, uh, you 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 can systematically identify who are the customers and and, and non-customers. Let me switch gears a little bit. What are the kinds of challenges, typical challenges that organizations face as they're trying to build this culture of innovation, as they're trying to empower the frontline workers and innovate across the organization and co-create, collaborate with customers? What are some of the challenges that, that you see? And Mon Monica, for example, what, you know, what are some of the challenges that, that you see inside uh, various organizations within Bayer? as we started maybe the discussion with is, of course, the ambidexterity sounds easy uh, in terms of on one hand having ex execution and on the other hand having innovation, but in the, it's, it's quite hard to do yeah, because you always have to sustain uh, one, uh, one part of the organization while 
you have to kind of let's say uh, your other leg uh, you have to play with and it's it's that is in the end not an easy decision because it goes on one hand on skills but it also goes into investments and it goes into portfolio yeah how much do you uh, invest in in the new areas versus the uh, existing and the sustaining ones Uh, sustaining your business and I mean we live in times which are absolutely disruptive yeah if I look on the healthcare side for example now we have invested also massively now in cell and gene therapy because it's the new paradigm that you no longer treat you are going to cure a disease yeah? and so I think this is really where you can see um, and it's of course on one hand we also have the existing activities but we have to go into a new way and Maybe it's very interesting how we have built this because we we bought some new companies, but we now have to integrate them and we have this as a whole ecosystem. Yeah, So it's not that we fully integrate these companies, but we keep them on an arm's length. But again, you have, uh, you have to manage this. So it also needs new skills. Uh, and I just want to give you this example because it, it clearly shows that you have to make always this decision how far do you go into a new direction versus sustaining uh, your existing revenue streams? One of the key challenges for organizations to, 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 to become more customer-oriented or more innovative is, 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 is really that their, their, their kind of structure is, 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 is modeled around the execution uh, engine, basically. These, 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 you know, execution is, is very much about is very much about control uh, and it's no surprise that many organizations have have vertical hierarchies and 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 uh, and, and and silos uh, where they bring teams together to to deal with uh, uh, problems and it's really often problem problem solving you know it's uh, uh, and and you bring a set of specialists and they have this very kind of conversion process of finding what is the best solution but innovating Or innovation is less about control, is more about collaboration and communication and teamwork, and 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 has to function with with horizontal structures which are focused on the customer. Uh, uh, and, and I can, for instance, give a, a, a nice example of, of of how this can function. Uh, there's this uh, company called Korsa. Uh, they It's a Turkish company which manufactures uh, uh, fabric that is used to uh, reinforce tires. Uh, and what they do is that on a regular basis, uh, they send cross-disciplinary teams to actually uh, go and camp in the factories of, of their customers. And they spend three, four days at a time just roaming around And, and, and observing what is going on and trying to uh, uh, understand how their, their, their customers are working. And just to, to, to show you how, how this can work, they, they told me that once at a, at a plant, the team, I mean, you're talking about somebody from engineering, somebody from, from production, from supply chain, from legal HR, they saw that the uh, workers at the customer were struggling with uh, unloading uh, rolls of uh, reinforcing fabric. And the customer had never complained about this. They never, they never talked to them about this. So they were really there 
at the facilities of the customer and they realized that they were peeking into a problem that nobody knew about. So they came back and devised a, a small routine, which they then taught to the customer about how, because they know how to deal with uh, rolls of fabric. And the customer was able to reduce the resources needed to handle these rolls from 30 minutes and three people to 12 minutes by one person. So again, this is about horizontal cross-discipline teams focused on the customer and not vertical silos. Monica, is there ever a tension between uh, needing to justify the resources for innovation, knowing that pulling resources into innovation may hurt the bottom line in the short term because you're, you know, you're you're taking you're taking resources that won't see a result until sometime in the future. Is there a tension there? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's always uh, the the tension between the short term gains and the long term gains, yeah. But if you get disrupted, uh, and as I said, I mean, we are living in times of disruption, be it on digital, be it on the bio revolution, where in the future you will produce many uh, many aspects through biologic means. Um, for example, if I just talk about artificial meat uh, or other things, so. Um, and, and this is where, where you have to balance, yeah, if you want to have the short or midterm gain or the long term. So, and this is in the art, it's the art of management, I would say. Ben, do you have very quick advice on managing this tension between the short term and the long term when it comes to innovation? The advice is to actually uh, pay attention and focus on middle managers. Because uh, the, the senior people, they understand the importance of uh, innovation. The frontline people, they're dealing with customers and non-customers all the time. So they understand that innovation is a no-brainer. Uh, the middle managers are the ones who are shielded from this pressure. And, and, and they are also responsible for execution. So it's very important to explain to them, advocate to them, uh, to, to incentivize them, as we said earlier, to make sure that they team uh, uh, is innovative. Monica, how do you think about the talent management pipeline for the organization in order to ensure that you have the right people in place to support innovation? You need diverse talents. That is very important for me. And diversity can be everything from gender, nationality, diversity of thoughts, uh, and so on. So uh, I, I, this is very, very important. And uh, yeah. It's all about diversity and having different perspectives and hiring for potential. Uh, I mean, don't necessarily hire always for those who have the skills for a given area because it will more or less stay the same then. But if you hire for potential, people can develop and come up with new things. And Ben, you're going to get the last word here. What advice do you have? Again, very quickly, what advice do you have on this talent management issue when it comes to innovation? I realize it's an enormous topic and we have about a... <laughs> I don't mean it to be a pun, but I would say that uh, it's not about talent. Uh, it's about skills. If you talk about innovation, people associate it with being a genius, to have a talent, to be creative. But if we you remember the distinction I make with innovating, if it is a process, if it is a behavior, then this is something you can you can learn. You can have 
tools to help people. And by the way, once people are given permission to innovate and they are given training to innovate, they're going to have fun in their job. They're going to like what they do. Uh, and with the safety, they're going to start to generate ideas. And you know, other people will want to join your company because it's uh, it's it's so 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 interesting to work for you. Okay, and with that, I'm afraid we're out of time. I want to say a huge thank you to Professor Ben Ben Sao. He is with INSEAD, and to Monica Lessel. She is with Buyer AG. Thank you both so much for taking the time to be here. I really, really am grateful to you. Thank you, Michael. It was fun. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Monica. It's been an honor. <laughs> Everybody, thank you for watching. Before you go, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button at the top of our website so we can send you our newsletter. And everybody, I hope you have a, a great day. Take care. Bye-bye.